0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just twenty five dollars a month, taxes and fees included. That's right, twenty five a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: It's the Weeds. I'm John Hill. And I did not go to Harvard. And if you're like most Americans, you didn't go to school in Boston either. After all... Harvard has an acceptance rate of just under 4%, but you would never know that by the coverage about Harvard and several other elite universities over the past few weeks. It all started with a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism.
1: University presidents from Harvard, Penn, and MIT are under fire following their test- But it
2: quickly turned into something else.
1: Harvard President Claudine Gay is under new scrutiny. Now, GOP lawmakers plan to investigate her for plagiarism claims. Harvard President Claudine Gay has announced she is resigning from office. In fact,
2: through the first week of January in the US, Harvard has been Googled more than Gaza which means you can argue that a culture war is taking up way more brain space for a lot of Americans than an actual war. And here's the thing. We're not here to decide which cohort of rich Ivy League graduates driving this conversation is correct. They are more than qualified to defend themselves and debate each other. And if history is any indicator, they'll continue to do so. We know that antisemitism and plagiarism are bad, We also know that all of this isn't really about either of those things. So what is it about? And what does that mean for the future of higher ed, including your local state school? To answer that question, I called up Adam Harris. Adam didn't go to Harvard either. Like me, he went to historically Black college. I went to Howard and he went to Alabama A&M. And unlike A&M, Howard's sneaker collab with Nike hasn't been released. And yes, I'm salty. It's so cold. Howard, where is my sneaker? Nike. Listen,
3: I got mine resale on StockX. Dang, it'd be like alongside the Stanley
2: Cups, you had to go to StockX?
3: I did, I did.
2: (laughs) (laughs) When Adam isn't battling the bots and the hype beasts, he writes for The Atlantic. He's also the author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. And while the credentials of the presidents of elite universities may be the topic du jour, I asked Adam what's really going on.
3: It's really difficult to view what has happened over the last couple of months, right, as disconnected from this broader assault on higher education that we've seen over the last couple of years, really. Um, But one that really intensified uh, in the last year or so. We had the Harvard Affirmative Action Trial working its way through court at the same time as you had sort of really conservative justices um, being put on the court by by former President Trump. You saw Republican um, lawmakers and activists sort of increasingly start to attack bureaucracy um, around diversity, equity and inclusion. We also saw state legislatures start to introduce these really interesting bills that would do everything from reform tenure protections to changing what it could and could not be taught in classes, to fundamentally altering uh, the definitions of, of academic freedom. And so over the year, I really just started observing what was happening in the legislatures um, and, uh, and and talking to people, historians. Um, John Thielen is one of them in particular, who says, you know, this was a year that was, was really a um, inflection point, right? This was a year that was fundamentally different than what we had seen in the past in higher ed.
2: I think to maybe people who don't know or haven't been paying close attention, it could sound conspiratorial when I say this, but a lot of what we've seen lately is a coordinated effort. Like the things that are happening on college campuses, you know, the um, the results we've seen are not happening by coincidence. And I wanna talk about some of the key players driving this. Who are they and how did they gain this much influence, just not in conservative circles, but in policy in general?
3: Yeah, so over the last couple of years since the, the Trump administration's one of the sort of central players has been this sort of conservative activist, Christopher Ruffell. He is the person who sort of reintroduced this idea of critical race theory into the national consciousness. Critical race theory has become, in essence, the default ideology of the federal bureaucracy. And sort of tried to paint it as something that was all-encompassing, that it influenced this diversity, equity, and inclusion push that we had seen in in the sort of wake of George Floyd's murder need to wake up that this is an existential threat to the United States. And the- he has this appearance on, on Fox News in um, 2020 on Tucker Carlson's program. And the bureaucracy, even under the Trump administration, is now being weaponized against core traditional American values. And from there, it just sort of, it just sort of takes off. It became a sort of shorthand to point to diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, which are effectively, they're less of a mandate and more of a way of trying to diversify a space, trying to make a space more inclusive in ways that it hasn't been before, right? To say that DEI is radically changing Harvard University would be a misstatement. To say that it's fundamentally changing Harvard University would be a misstatement. because these institutions are as, as Victor Ray says, right, a this sort of racialized organizations have a way of operating um, that is not going to be radically changed by one or two bureaucrats that they have placed in the system.
2: Rufo is pretty blatant about his intentions. Like he will tweet out the plans, and they happen just as he says they're going to happen. And, you know, he's also not in tune with just, like, conservatives, but also how institutions will react to things. And I'm wondering why these institutions, and that includes, you know, media, some of our colleagues, that includes these universities, that includes, you know, people on all sides of the aisle, It feels like they're playing into it. Why why do people keep playing into this, especially, you know, if he's saying, hey, y'all, these are my plans. This is what's next.
3: There's a natural tendency in media to cover the thing that is most interesting and the thing that people are talking about at the moment. And so by creating a sort of critical mass of conversation online about an issue, sort of making it a central issue in, in conservative circles, eventually it will catch on in in some of the more mainstream publications. This is the same thing that happened with um, sort of critical race theory after it was co-opted. You had that initial surge of stories that were, oh, well... Critical race theory is this, and this is happening in schools. And then the next wave of stories were the ones that provided context around what was actually Mm. going on. But by the time you provide that context, so many people already believe the original thing. And so many people already think, this is what was said, and now you're just trying to change the story.
2: I do want to take a second to talk about DEI. You know, it stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, And it feels like a lot of things are getting shoved under this umbrella. Like, I don't know. It just feels like people see a Black person at their job and they're like, that's DEI, right? And it's like, "Mm, no. What? (laughs) So explain for the people, what is it and how is it supposed to work?
3: So diversity and equity inclusion or DEI is really supposed to be a way to, in, in some ways, diversify a space, but also to make people feel more welcome in a space, right? to think about the ways that organizations have historically operated and to think about ways to make them better. But what DEI has become shorthand for is sort of the, the old sort of affirmative action hire, um, slur, mm. where, where people would say, oh, that was just an affirmative action hire. Now they say, oh, this is just DEI bureaucracy at work. If anything is changing about an institution, it's, that's DEI uh, bureaucracy at work. Or even if it's just a black person in a leadership position, it's like, well, that's, you know, we're moving away from meritocracy and moving towards this sort of DEI world, which is fascinating to me, um, said with the most <laughs> sarcasm because you know, when we talk about moving from meritocracy to DEI, what that really means is we're moving from a world where white men predominantly um, were in these positions of power. And now we are moving towards a world where that is not always the case. It is still predominantly the case, but it's not always the case. And it seems that people can't wrap their brains around the idea that someone might have gotten there, not because of, of DEI, but because they were the person for the job.
2: I guess my thing is, like, I don't care if people think I'm a DEI hire. Like, I know at the end of the day what I'm capable of and I'm good at my job. And I don't know. Maybe my parents just raised me to be with, like, an inflated sense of self-confidence, which I think (laughs) everyone should raise their child to have a somewhat inflated (laughs) sense of self-confidence. But I don't know. I've never walked in a room and thought, oh, I'm here because I'm black. Every time I walk in a room, I'm like, I do deserve to be here or else I would not be here.
3: It's not speaking to us. Yeah, it's speaking to the group who they're trying to activate, right? It's speaking to to other folks who they feel may be aggrieved by the fact that they're trying to find a way or a reason that they didn't get a job or they're not getting into an institution. In, in my book, I wrote about affirmative action from its roots to when it was sort of killed in the cradle, and it was really only about fifteen years. Between when affirmative action first came into the national lexicon with uh, an executive order from President Kennedy up until, you know, 1978 and the Bakke decision, when it is limited to saying that race-conscious admissions or affirmative action can't be used as a repayment for um, any past injustices, but can only be used for the benefit of, of all people, right? Race conscious admissions is only as good as it benefits everyone. And I, it's, it was more so that, you know, people were trying to understand or explain away why they didn't get something. And it was easiest to point to race conscious admissions. And now it is easy to point to DEI as the reason why things aren't the way they would like them to be.
2: I'm glad you mentioned Kennedy because this has been, DI has been a concept since the 1960s, but it's now where it's gotten a lot of attention. It became a big focus in 2020 after police murdered George Floyd. And, you know, I also argue that not much actual action came from that, but it was a lot of talk, it, lots and lots of talking. And I suppose that's more than that's been done. Um... And, you know, again, in June, we saw the Supreme Court end affirmative action in higher ed. I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more about the way the concept has been weaponized?
3: If you look across some of the legislation that came out of state legislatures last year, a lot of it was targeted towards sort of eliminating DEI. They were tying funding to the elimination of DEI programs. They were um, explicitly writing in bills that diversity, equity, inclusion could not be a part of public university systems and different things like that. And I think that in a lot of ways, You know, as you mentioned, right, we saw these sort of grand gestures towards, oh, there's going to be billions and billions of dollars that these corporations are going to spend on helping improve the status of of folks. And there's always this feeling. Well, if they're getting something, then we're not getting something, right? It's, it's sort of viewing things as a zero sum. And, you know, one of the things I, I would actually point to is the $4 billion that black farmers were supposed to get. Congress passed a bill that President Biden signed that would have given $4 billion to black farmers to make up for the past discrimination that they had faced in receiving loans and, and, you're right, and getting seed, all these different programs that they were shut out of. And there was a a suit almost immediately that said, well, if they're going to get $4 billion, mm. why can't white farmers get $4 billion? Um, and the response was, you know, obviously, well, because they were the ones who were kept away from... This four billion dollars worth of, or the funds over, over this long period of time. But that is effectively what's happening now, right? You have this sort of DEI space that is trying to make places more equitable, more inclusive, more diverse at a smaller scale. And there's been a visceral reaction as they see the sort of demographics of the nation changing, um, to say that, well, we need to protect the gains or, you know, what we, what we have.
2: Are there ways that DEI could be better? Like if you just type into Google, you will see argument after argument that DEI has blind spots as specifically when it relates to anti-Semitism. Like there are people that argue that DEI leads to more anti-Semitism. And I'm wondering what you're seeing and how that's playing out.
3: DEI is, you know, at, at its root, right, it's about the fair treatment and full participation of, of all people, right? It, there's this idea that it is created to sort of shut people out or, or keep people away. But in reality, it's about wrapping as many people into a system as possible. And so I feel like over the last couple of months, all of the cultural issues have been conflated and wrapped into one another so as to say that well if you're supportive of dei initiatives then you you're not being supportive of students who are facing anti-semitism when that's not true if you are working towards dei then you are working to make an inclusive environment for jewish students you're working to make an inclusive environment for muslim students you're working to make an inclusive environment for christian students conservative students um, liberal students black students white students but that's not the way that it's painted right? painted as this is only something that's going to help Black people. This is only something that's going to help racialized minorities. And that is not something that, you know, conservatives have been able to stand at this point.
2: Up next, what we get wrong about higher education and why we're so obsessed with the Ivy League. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard?
0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
2: Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of the Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B U R R O W, dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash
1: weeds. Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing.
2: Elite schools have dominated the conversation these past few weeks, but those schools serve just a fraction of all college students in the U.S. There's actually a lot at stake at the local level, where far more students attend public universities. State governments wield a lot of power when it comes to funding and governing of state schools. I asked Adam what he's been watching.
3: Texas was one of the big states last year where there was a lot of consternation about the ways that the um, state legislature was seeking to change its tenure protections, right? Ultimately, the bill didn't go as far as eliminating tenure, but it did um, move towards making it easier for professors um, to be fired, for tenure professors to be fired. They, you know, pushed to eliminate some DEI initiatives. In Wisconsin, the legislature's literally held up the budget, um, this sort of multi-million dollar budget uh, for its state university is in exchange for the limits on DEI programs at state institutions. In North Carolina, we saw similar pushes to alter tenure protections and, and protections for shared governance. In Florida, one of the leading state institutions, we mentioned Christopher Ruffo earlier, he serves on the board now of New College of Florida, which was a, a more progressive um, public institution in the state. But they, they have set it on a mission to make that more like Hillsdale College, a private institution in Michigan that is one of the most conservative institutions in the country. There has been this thought that liberals have pushed their way into academia and made it this ultra-liberal institution, and um, when in reality, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but conservatives are actively trying to force conservative ideas on on institutions and to make them, a- in some ways more ideological factories like Hillsdale College
2: people always talk about the way schools shape students. And it's true. Mm. Like, especially if you're able to go off to a four-year, you're going to be around people you've never seen before. You're going to have to navigate roommates. You're going to just, you're going to have a whole brand new <laughs> set of experiences that are going to probably shape your adulthood. But I don't think we talk about the way students shape schools and how there are so many different types of schools. Like, if you want to go to a liberal arts, single-sex college, you can. If you want to go to a huge research and in- university, you can. If you want to go to a state school with, like, a great football team, you can. And, I mean, I, I'm not surprised, but it just seems like rather than let's shape these different institutions, let's shore up the institutions that, you know, align with our values.
3: I think that we spend too much time thinking about, you know, this subset of seven or eight institutions. um, When in reality, we should be spending a lot of time thinking about community colleges, thinking about public regional institutions, thinking about the colleges that most students are likely to attend, right? Most people in the United States don't attend college in the first place. By focusing so much on these institutions, we've turned college into a sort of zero-sum game, um, Mm -hmm. to think that if you don't get into Harvard, if you don't get into Princeton, if you don't get into Yale, then, you know, you're just falling further and further down the pecking order. When the reality is, college is what you make it. You know, people love to talk about the Founding Fathers. But if you go back to George Washington's first speech before Congress, Um, He says, there's nothing that would better deserve your patronage than the arts and the sciences because education in any nation is the surest basis of public happiness. Him and a couple of the other founding fathers were thinking of a way to build good citizens, Mm. to build people who were actively engaged, right? Of course, this wasn't applying to everyone at that point. They had a certain definition of citizens. It didn't include, you know, enslaved folks. It didn't include, in, in a lot of cases, women. But- There was this thought that education was acutely important. It had a significant importance. And we saw that sort of same theme and idea come up time and time again in in history. Like, Like, higher education was important for the public. But now we've moved towards a situation where people only view higher education as a private good. Mm. It's almost like people have a responsibility. In the same way that it's like, oh, well, if it's a private good, then I don't want the $5 Walmart cologne. I want that, you know, $200. Yeah. And they're viewing Harvard as the sort of $200 or, you know, $200,000 car, as opposed to the one that does the same job, gets you from place A to place B and gets you into the workforce.
2: Yeah. Listen, you can get where you're going in a Nissan Altima. You can
3: get where you're going. I drive a Dodge Dakota and it does the job. It
2: gets it it done.
3: (laughs) Exactly.
2: And I'm glad you brought that up because something that I've been asking myself over and over again as a, I watch these stories about schools unfold. I did not go to Harvard. I went to Howard. And I live in the same city where I attended college. So anything my school does, I see on the local news. Yeah. And despite this, I have heard more about Harvard University than my alma mater, like, I think, since homecoming ended. Like, it's been nothing but that wall to wall. What is our obsession with these elite institutions? I
3: think the obsession is it it revolves around the sort of power structure in America, right? If you look across Congress, if you look across the Supreme Court, if you look across presidents past and present, in a lot of ways, President Biden is an anomaly in that he went to a public college. Um, But the share of, you know, high-ranking officials in government and business and elsewhere who went to these institutions make people believe that the only way to get to those posts is by attending one of these institutions.
2: Mm. And... I mean, they're kind of right.
3: And, and, and in some ways, they are. They're, they are kind of right, which reflects poorly on the way that the business sense and the way that hiring is conducted, right? It's one of the reasons why you have DIs to, to look at places that aren't just those seven or eight colleges, but to look elsewhere um, because talent is not limited to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, etc. Talent can be found Across the country, and it's it's fascinating that for folks who claim to care so much about you know the people who have been forgotten, they often forget about the people who aren't attending those institutions.
2: Higher ed is far from perfect, and you know we've talked today about a lot of the reasons why. But it seems like there are so many other things that could be reformed in higher education. I'm thinking student loans. I think of Title IX. I kind of want to get into some of the fixes and sort of some of the other stuff and issues we're seeing in higher education that's maybe going under the radar because it's not part of this culture war conversation.
3: Yeah, I, I think, as you mentioned, right, student loans, um, it feels like everyone is known a long time that there needs to be reforms to the student loan system, right? It is broken. At one point, student loans were a tool to help people access college, right? Um, And now they are fundamentally the key to unlocking uh, higher education more generally. And so we've seen some pushes for reforms for student loans recently. I wrote about one um, that would actually ban places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, from taking student loans. Uh, yeah, can under, you talk uh, about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So so recently, um, the House Education Committee passed a bill out of committee that would bar the, the institutions that are subject to this endowment tax. So a couple of years ago, um, in the tax bill, Congress passed this tax that said any institution that has sort of an outsized share of money per uh, tuition-paying student would um, be subject to this endowment tax. And so it's it's primarily private colleges with very, very large endowments, uh, private medical schools with very large endowments. And this bill would effectively bar students who attend those institutions from taking out federal student loans. The idea behind it is that, well, if you if you keep them from taking student loans, then the university will cover the cost of tuition, fees, et cetera, for those students. And in principle, I think it's a good idea. But in practice, we haven't seen where these universities are that committed to actually covering that debt for students. And and in reality, what what would more likely happen is that they would enroll a smaller percentage of students that could not afford to pay for their full freight of tuition, um, or those students would be forced into taking out private loans. And if those students were forced into taking out private loans, we already know how predatory a lot of those loans can be. And so it it would, you know, just sort of further throw students into debt, but a different kind of debt. Mm. Um, And also sort of reshape the socioeconomic picture of the institution, the racial pictures of the institutions. And so that's one thing that that I've been looking at. But I also think, you know, as we move forward, there are still these really big issues around student homelessness, Mm. um, around student hunger that we should really be spending time with that by focusing on this subset of institutions, you know, all of the oxygen really just sort of gets sucked away.
2: We've talked a little bit about this House bill that's moved through committee and, you know, some of the cons. But what are the pros? Because this bill, it has bipartisan support. So what's the argument there?
3: So for years, Congress has been pushing for short-term Pell Grants, right? We, We already have... Pell grants for programs that that are pretty short, but this would allow students to use Pell grants, so grants for low-income students that you know, they don't need to be repaid for short-term programs, um, somewhere uh, you know in the range of a couple of weeks, and the thought is that you know, it would get students in the door and out of the door faster so that they could get towards uh, making more money for their families. And in order to do that, in order to expand how many programs are able to use Pell Grants, they need an offset. You know, on on the Hill, they just call it a Mm pay-for. And the pay-for is effectively this elimination of servicing and giving out loans to students at, at these wealthy institutions. And Like I said, in in principle, it's an interesting and, and good idea. But in practice, it's really difficult to see where this will do anything but make those institutions less socioeconomically diverse, less racially diverse. Because, you know... Yes, some of them already have packages where they pay; it's, it's tuition free for students up to a certain threshold. But that doesn't extend to graduate schools. Mm. So if you're if you're thinking about Harvard, um, <laughs> which you know we shouldn't be thinking about Harvard, but we, you know if you're thinking about Harvard, that means that a student at Harvard Divinity School or uh, Harvard Kennedy School or Harvard Law School, um, which has an outsized share of Supreme Court justices, those schools would become less socioeconomically diverse as well because they would be barred from taking those graduate student loans at the, from the federal government.
2: Yeah, And it would
3: just make the sort of upper echelons of government, of business, less diverse.
2: Yeah, I think, I think especially, I mean, and your article pointed towards this, it also kind of ices out the middle class because, you know, if you make too much for Pell, grants but don't make enough to just write a check for tuition where does that leave you
3: it leaves you in a very difficult place um, for institutions that are increasingly expensive. As you mentioned, right? There's there's a saying that you know this person's too poor to pay for college, but too rich for Pell. And if you're right in that middle band, then your parents are going to typically have to look for alternative resources, whether that's private student loan, whether that's taking out um, a second mortgage on the house in order to to fund things, which just really puts a squeeze on the middle class. And in a year. Where yes, our inflation's down, prices of a consumer goods are are heading down, um, and people to you know typically ca- say that they care about the economy and, and the middle class being squeezed. This is something that would only further squeeze the middle class that is already being squeezed.
2: All right, y'all, we've got to take one last break. Up next, the funding conundrum for schools with fewer resources, and how I donate my lotto winnings
0: if I won. Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The Endless Shrimp Fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience too? Actually, yes, and we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As we begin to wind down, I've been thinking about this and like the future of education in college a lot. And I realize that they are not the answer and it would only be for a small sliver of students. But when things like these big things happen, I constantly think like with the end of affirmative action, with everything going on, I'm like, okay, well, it's time to put all my eggs in the HBCU education basket. And granted, I went to one and I've gotten out. And I was very fortunate that at the time they were giving out money um, because I know one of the issues is that, you know, there are limitations, funding being one of them. And I went to one of the ones with funding. And even that one does not have that much funding.
3: (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because... In twenty twenty, it seemed like everybody was like, "Oh, well, you know, HBCUs are getting all of this money, and it's going to fundamentally change the way that they're able to enroll and recruit students. And um, they're going to be able to capacity build. But one year does not make up for more than a century of discrimination in funding. Let's start in the early 1900s when Kentucky brings this guy, William T. B. Williams. He's a professor at Hampton. He's taught at Tuskegee, and they bring him in and they're like, "Hey, how do we bring our school for black students up to the standards of Hampton? How do we bring it up to the standards of
2: trusty? Up to the, let me stop. That's yeah. me being a hater. Anyway.
3: <laughs> the home by the sea. Um, so uh, how do we bring it up to up to these institutions? And he comes around the campus and he, he surveys it and he writes this report. And he's just, he pulls no punches. He's like, well, we got a couple issues. Your girl's dorm is fire-prone and lacks a fire escape. Your mm. boy's dorm is in a mud puddle. Your electrical plant doesn't have power. Your facilities are, are old. The faculty's great. The students are great. But it would take radical departures from established plans, this is quote-unquote, in order to change this institution. And the state looks around and they're like, well, we have about $40,000. We can do it with that. Mm. You fast forward to the 1940s, and President Truman pulls together this commission of esteemed folks, you know, this blue ribbon commission to study um, higher education, right? The, and they published this report on higher education and American democracy. And they talk about the underfunding of institutions for black students compared to white students. And they say Kentucky is the worst in the country at funding black students in higher education and white students at a rate of 42 to one. There was not a single state that funded them equally, including the District of Columbia, which was three to one. Then you fast forward to last year, two years ago, where you literally have state lawmakers saying, well, maybe Kentucky state should close because it can't manage its funds, Mm. right? That's like saying to a poor person, that because you can't manage your funds, you shouldn't be here anymore. Um, When in reality, y'all were withholding the funds to begin with. There have been several reports, including one from Forbes and one from the federal government, that outline the ways that some of these institutions have been underfunded by billions of dollars. And so that is one of the things that prohibits folks from just saying, well, it's the end of affirmative action. We can turn to HBCUs, is that there's still these years long sort of um, weight of inequitable funding that hangs over them that they're still trying to account for. You know, even, even in 2020, as I mentioned, right, I went to Alabama A&M. We got our largest ever single donation in 2020. It was $2.2 million.
2: Was it McKinsey Scott?
3: It was not McKinsey Scott.
2: Oh. Yeah.
3: We were we were one of the ones that didn't get the McKenzie Scott money. Um, but we got uh, money from an alum who said, you know, I'm going to donate to my school. And they donated $2.2 million, which was fantastic. I um, mean, we really appreciated it. But... If you think about the amount of institutions that get single donations of $5 million, you can probably do a search, and there have probably been a dozen or more institutions that in that last week of 2023 received $5 million donations, single Mm. donations.
2: Wow. And, you know, even I think Howard had like a record amount of applications. I'm forgetting exactly what Mm -hmm. year it was. And it was just they had to say, like, we literally don't have the space. We don't have the dorms. And, I mean, that's a, the dorms are a different rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. But, and, yeah. It,
3: and it's a it's a capacity thing, right? And, and institutions need funds to capacity build. And, you know, th- there's this thought that, okay, well, you've gotten this money in. You should immediately be building new dorms. And that's not necessarily the way that it can work because oftentimes, especially for philanthropy, right, those dollars are going to be tied to a certain thing. And to say, you know— I hit the lottery. I'm crossing my fingers right now. Y'all can't see me, but I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> I hit the lottery, and I'm like, you know what? I want to give Alabama a 25000000 million. And because I study political science and philosophy at Alabama a I want to donate that to the Department of Social Sciences so that, you know, the political science and the philosophy programs can grow. Now, I would likely turn that over to like student aid or, um, you know, housing, but just for the sake of an example. So those are the types of strings that a lot of universities have on their money um, to say that, okay, well, we put this, it's going into our endowment, but it's for this specific purpose. And you want to be able to build on that endowment so you can eventually spend down on it to capacity build, but that takes time. And as I mentioned, right, if you've been discriminated against for a hundred plus years, it's going to take a significant investment in order to undo that sort of legacy of discrimination.
2: That's a good point because I would definitely use my imaginary lottery money to get a podcast studio named after me on campus. So, <laughs> I, if I you do the get the lottery,
3: um, I'm going to say it's because I mentioned the lottery on the show. Oh and yeah,
0: <laughs> so I owe you. I yeah.
2: owe you at least one check. <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: Owe yeah. you at least one check. <laughs> All right, Adam Harris, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks
3: so much for having me.
2: I spoke with Adam on January 4th. The campaign to oust all three university presidents who gave congressional testimony escalated yet again. With Liz McGill and Claudine Gay out, the focus now turns to MIT and its president, Sally Kornbluth. That's all for us today. Thanks to Adam Harris for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Colleen Barrett fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Gwilen-Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give.